welcome folks i know it's been so long since we've done one of these it's been like 22 hours so I, you're just so tired of my face uh so we have a, a repeat guest today to talk about protest security and emergency medical uh safety you may know her as the woke scientist on instagram and now found on substack uh dr aisha khan so thanks for coming back <laughs> thanks was that a good intro <laughs> repeat guest sounds so cozy. I, I know, right? We're like, <laughs> like old friends now. <laughs> so how are you doing? I know it's a lot warmer where you are than I am, and I am freezing, and I have a bunch of chickens like squawking behind <laughs> this wall over here. So it's just... Wait, are those the little chicks that they all posted? Like the yep. baby chicks? Oh, yep. so <laughs> yeah, so there's a bunch of those, and my cats are just angrily like pacing near them. It's Yeah, it's a fun time. <laughs> So for folks that are watching on my Instagram live stream off my phone, I'm about to cut off. So if you guys want to join us, twitch.tv slash Almanac, or you can hop on Facebook or YouTube to watch it over there. See you guys another time. All right, that is done. So it's uh, impressive how you juggle all these like different platforms at the same time. It's so oh, I'm terrible at it. Like th this is the extent of my social media skills is like doing this. Um, I didn't really use social media until like we started the podcast and my wife's like do you know what a meme is and i was like i think so it's the pictures right <laughs> and then she got mad at me that i'm better at it than her and yeah so that's a whole long long story uh so welcome everyone um if you are not familiar with the poor pearls almanac and you're wondering why you're watching this uh we are a podcast that focuses on building skills building dual power thinking about what the future looks like and how do we prepare for that future today on the Twitch channel or wherever you're watching this, we focus primarily on this concept of skill sharing, talking to people that have skills that we don't, and just basically trying to give people the basic foundational knowledge that they can use to know what they don't know and start making steps towards being more resilient, building better communities, all of that important stuff. And uh, Dr. Khan has been with us a few times to chat about various uh, subject matters, usually about uh, like intrapersonal stuff mostly. Uh, so this is a little bit outside of what we've done in the past. Uh, so let's talk about protest security. Okay, so uh, uh, I guess I wanted to kind of do a broader, bigger picture overview of security culture. And I think just because these are words that weren't familiar to me until I got into grassroots activism, like I didn't understand what any of this was. So for folks that are new to the whole like world of organizing, uh, a lot of this applies if you are in community already. And I think that's something I highly recommend, finding other community members to organize with. So other um, other organizations or groups that already exist um, that are able to give you some sort of a starting point because it's always easier to start with other people rather than just figure it out on your own. Yeah, um, and before you keep going, I do want to say this is something I see quite a bit, and I'm sure you do too. It's like people are like, I want to start an organization because there's nothing here. And there is things there. They just don't know about it. Uh, so it, like, seriously, like if you're interested in like organizing, reach out to people in various communities, whether it's left gun organizations or food, not bombs or things like that, you are going to find somebody in your area. I almost guarantee you it exists already. So tap into that infrastructure before you kind of go down yep. this road. Yeah. And I, I guess it'll become really obvious soon why you it's easier to learn from um, existing organizations that have built some sort of infrastructure because 
And there's directories. And for example, if you're involved in academia or, you know, are an undergrad or in any college campus of any kind, that's a really easy starting point for joining already well-established uh, activism groups that are doing work. And then in communities, there's there's uh, a lot of like databases, essentially, of groups and, and what they do. So um, I think it helps to start somewhere, even if it's not perfect. And I think part of learning is just doing, and then you kind of see what's what works and what doesn't work, and then find other groups or organizations that might be a better fit. But security culture in general is essentially the the the, the ways um, and strategies that groups and grassroots organizers take in uh, in order to be, um, I guess, efficient and smart in how you organize, uh, being aware of threats that are uh, already existent, like the state and being very proactive in making sure your organizing isn't just reactionary, but it's uh, set up in a manner that you know and you understand the systems that you work under and you're aware of not just the systems that you're working against, but also the power that you have and how you can leverage that power um, efficiently, I guess. And I say efficiently because each individual member of any group or organization, even within like a friends group, has varying levels of privilege that can be leveraged and also varying levels of like, I guess, risk that makes them more or less of a target to the state. So I'll kind of go into what, what that means. But essentially, um, the one thing it, it helps to keep in mind is anything really effective that's, that's genuinely supposed to disrupt the status quo in any manner is not probably going to be something that's going to be signed off by authority. And therefore, with that comes a whole bunch of ever-present risks that are constantly present, like not situational risks, and then situational risks like cops showing up and uh, things that are just happening all the time, basically, to suppress activism. Um, and I think it helps to understand that nothing we ever really do, if it's if it's meaningful, if it's really rocking the boat, is safe, quote-unquote, and never to presume that it is safe. Um, and that there's always a level of risk, therefore you can go in with some amount of risk assessment and, and sort of protect your community that way. Um, and like I said, level of risk uh, varies by identity, and I think that's that's this is where sort of the layer of, of identity politics does come in, to where um, different folks, depending on their access to resources, can have a little bit more uh, flexibility, essentially, with how much they can do and get away with, as opposed to other people that have way more at stake. And we'll kind of talk about leveraging that. Um, so I guess the first thing is thinking about if you are part of group already, that maybe is trying to build better infrastructure. Um, there's, we're gonna share uh, a couple of resources that have all of this like very systematically laid out. And I recommend reading that because we can't cover it in, in one session, but essentially doing risk assessment and identifying the threats. Uh, and like briefly, like examples of, of threats are just different apparatuses, state apparatuses. So like law enforcement. And I guess we can like throw tips based on personal experience, but all of my experience with all of this comes from specific organizing around, I guess, probably one of the most quote unquote extreme issues to organize around in the United States, uh, which is which is Palestine, which gets the most intense sort of surveillance and uh, state blowback. So I guess I have maybe a little bit more experience with security culture than sometimes some other organizers that organize around other issues that are more acceptable. So there's even risk with issues. There are certain issues that are riskier than others. Um, so law enforcement, uh, enforcement, obviously, and I know people think, I guess, before you go into the world of organizing, a lot of this sounds like it's just precaution that might be unfounded uh, and 
that it's all based on some like myth, but it's, it's, it is very real. And if you look into it and once you actually experience it, you'll see how prevalent it is and common it is for law enforcement to, for example, investigate charge and falsely convict activists as a classic mechanism of like distraction really, um, to distract groups and there where their majority of their efforts and energies poured into and honestly just scare activists into not doing what they're doing. So there is yep. a consistent structure. <laughs> Yeah, so I'll plug right now at the bottom of the screen, we have our Discord. That's where all of the, the documentation that we've, uh, that uh, Aisha's mentioned is uh, uploaded to our Twitch, or um, the Twitch channel, rather, of our Discord. So if you want to hop on over there, uh, all that information is there uh, that we'll be referring to. Yep. Um, and I will, I will obviously, and uh, you know, the second half of this will just focus on protest safety, but I'm kind of giving this overview just because I didn't know a lot of this when I walked into the world of grassroots organizing. And it was sort of, it was scary, I think, at the beginning, realizing how powerful the forces that you're up against are, but then being aware of it, I think, makes you feel a lot more safer knowing that you're not the only one doing this. It's not the first time this is being done. There have been across movements, a lot of strategies that people have developed to be able to push back. Um, and obviously government agencies, that's a huge thing. So this is sort of the ever present threat that's not situational. So it doesn't just happen at a protest or, or an at a particular initiative, but like surveillance of activists, that is both in-person surveillance. So for example, I'll like give anecdotes based on my own experience. So we've had, like when we have annual conferences, when organizers are coming together to, to plan and strategize and think about how to structure our movements, We've like actually <laughs> had to um, do checks for wiretaps because those are pretty common, and we've we've had that problem with uh, in-person organizing. And outside of that, for example, a lot of um, uh, a lot of activists that have some sort of uh, uh, electronic footprint. So if you have uh, some like 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 us, I guess <laughs> if you have podcasts, if you do something like that. Um, then that can be used against you. So uh, examples are, um, for example, it being pulled up by the TSA when folks are entering the country, and that's often sometimes been used to pull them aside and interrogate them based on their electronic footprint, um, or in the process of getting jobs at certain corporations, if, I mean, hope, yeah, you know, if, if that's something you have to do. Um, and then also, uh, this is just, I guess, interesting to talk about because people are always shocked when I talk about it, but it's so common in the scope of Palestine organizing but visits by like the FBI, by, by intelligence, um, intelligence agencies, the unannounced visits. I had like two at home visits where literally just like agents showed up from the FBI and Homeland Security and then just started asking me a bunch of questions. And uh, ultimately, and it wasn't just me. So this was this is why it's helpful to organize in community because the uh, initially when I got the sort of surveillance um, and this goes to tactics to combat it, some of the approaches that we end up taking are very, very defensive and end up in kind of being counterproductive and falling right in the into the trap of what they want us to do, I guess, which is silence yourself, organize in secret, be very gatekeepy about how we do our organizing and spend so much energy being reactionary. Um, and I guess initially, maybe that is the defensive mode that a lot of people fall into. So I did try to like not post as much online, not be as open about my activism and, and sort of take that route. And then talking to people more and being more open about what I was going through made me realize that so many people around the country are going through the same thing and we just maybe don't talk about it to each other. And then that led me to resources like pro bono legal support, for example, which a lot of, um, a lot of organizations around the country are willing to offer just if you were organizing around an issue, any kind of social justice issue. 
Um, you just have to sort of like look up support. Um, and I think then I took the opposite approach, which a lot of movements have taken to push back against uh, surveillance and, and law enforcement violence in general, which is being extremely transparent and open about your movements and how you organize. And because we don't have anything to hide. So um, I basically went the other route, which is being very unfiltered about everything that I do and what I'm involved in. And then that way it's almost like turning the, the surveillance onto them, right? Because your, your activities are very transparent. So it makes it harder sometimes to be able to uh, push back when everybody else is watching too. And this is an approach that people take even situationally, like in a protest. The bigger the protest is, the more transparent you are about who's organizing it, how's, how it's being organized, and disseminating information. Again, the harder it is because it's not just police having eyes on you, then it's everybody. And there is more accountability to that. And I guess uh, with that, we can kind of talk about uh, the most common, I guess, tactic to, to push back is decentralization of all, of all, any and all kinds. Um, essentially being able to, de one, decentralize your actual movement. So if you're in an organization, not having hierarchical structures where one person holds all the keys and that holds all skills, resources, and making sure multiple people are able to, to function uh, and do the same functions of the organization or, or be able to respond to different threats. I think that's really helpful to really spend time building infrastructure. That's what we talk so much about having existing infrastructure. Um, and decentralizing also like in real time. So if you're organizing um, a protest, for example, there's guides on how to structure the protest itself. And for example, have people that have a little bit more privilege up to the front and on the sides. Um, so again, finding ways to mitigate risks based on leveraging the power that you do have and the, the privilege that you do have. And being open and transparent is part of that, uh, being very open about how, how you recruit and how the movement is, um, but also at the same time having security culture protocols. Um, and that's why we talk about organizing in community, I guess, because communities that are strong and focusing on your relationships, so actually building relationships with the people that you organize with is super important because that's basically how you filter through infiltrators. <laughs> And again, that's another word where people are like, what? No, but yes, <laughs> like it actually is very extremely common. And uh, especially in, in move, abolitionist movements of any kind or movements that are pushing back directly against the, the US like imperialism, um, where being in like really strong relationships with each other makes it very difficult for someone from the outside to just come in and, and hijack movements or cause disruption that, that's not intended. Um, a simple example situationally is there's like intended placement of disruptors and protests sometimes to just randomly incite violence that doesn't make any sense. Um, that totally distracts from like the aim of, of what the protest was supposed to be about, right? Like, and, and keeping an eye out for, for each other and structuring your, your initiatives around knowing each other and caring for each other makes that much harder to do. Um, so I guess the, the most important thing is to start with risk assessment thinking about not just uh, issue. Um, X is a cop disruption that sometimes happens as a, yeah, that never helps. I don't think that ever, <laughs> that ever works out well. Uh, this is where I was going back to sometimes it, it takes way more effort and is a distraction to be so reactionary to everything. Um, so I think it's way better to start off with a solid foundation and like build infrastructure proactively. So say that, okay, we're gonna build all these protocols to to make sure that we're having relationships with each other, we have accountability mechanisms, we have mediation, conflict mediation, which is like one way to, to go through uh, organizational issues. 
and think about, okay, make sure we're not a hierarchy, what kind of decision-making processes we're going to have and do all of that proactively. So you don't just have to think about that when something happens and, you know, it might just be interpersonal conflict sometimes, which can be worked through if you already have processes in place as opposed to just like calling someone a cop, I guess. <laughs> to be yeah. fair, I've been, I've been called a cop on, on Instagram by, by people that just think I'm a cop because I, I actually think nation states are bad and not just America. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you've brought up a couple of points and actually uh, it kind of works into what we've talked about in the past, this idea of building community and the necessity to, to build meaningful community outside of the internet. And I, I think that's a, a really hard thing for a lot of people, not just because of COVID, but I think for uh, younger generations, uh, that's a little bit more inaccessible and then creating, trying to build that framework can be really difficult. And uh, it's a, it's a slow process. And, you know, you've just to circle back to what you said earlier about like, you know, how, how do you engage, especially if you have a platform with um, any kind of uh, protest or organi organizing in general mm -hmm. uh, can be really challenging. And it's something uh, that you definitely either you once you can't be in the middle you have to either go all in or not at all uh, yeah in terms yeah. of how you how you play that that role yeah and i think the the being in the middle will lead to essentially what i talked about which is like i think a lot of people are in the middle initially right like it is as you yourself are like unplugging from all these systems you might still be wrapped under like the fear of what if I never, you know, do this? What if this happens? What if that happens? And I think you just have to assess for yourself how far are you willing to go and is it worth it? And and be very realistic about this. And because at the end of the day, the problem also is sometimes you have people that aren't willing to go all the way, and then those can be very disruptive to movements. And those are threats essentially, because if you have, and this is very common, neoliberals enter like radical leftist movement spaces, and then when it's time to like go all out and, and do like a disruptive action or civil dis disobedience of any kind, then it's like, oh, but I'm not comfortable with this because it's not a legal protest. Well, of course it's not a legal protest. Like most effective protests aren't legal protests. So it's, yeah. it, then, then it becomes really hard for the people that have invested so much of their energy into building that movement to now spend so much time trying to appease all these people that are uncomfortable and are fragile and feel unsafe by the nature of opposing the state, which is, yeah. which is why I started off with nothing about this is safe. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's something I think we we've historically seen. If you look at like even Black Lives Matter, yeah. um, you know, the movements get commodified and co-opted so quickly, yeah. uh, and and it's a very specific tactic to basically defang any actual meaningful protest. Yeah, and I, and I yeah, I guess like we need to start seeing this as a intentional tactic because I know a lot of people sometimes say, oh, it just so happens, and then don't assign this like malicious inten intention to it, but it is, it is, it is very intentional for corporations to suddenly start using like BLM marketing and, and throw it on their products. And like, it is also like, for example, diversity inclusion initiatives that happen on a lot of corporations and institutions. Those are literally just meant to distract you. <laughs> it's literally just an appeasing tactic that's meant to take all of this probably well-intentioned energy that people come in with wanting to genuinely change something and having all this hope and take that and then take it into something that absolutely goes nowhere. And by the time you get to the end and you realize, oh shit, nothing's gonna happen, then you're already really tired and burnt out. And then that cycle just sort of continues. So all of these structures in terms of state repression and institutional repression exist to exhaust you. So security culture is also mitigating how exhausted you are by not misdirecting your efforts on things that don't matter. And I think like constantly being distrustful of each other and you know that stuff like that sometimes is part of that distraction 
right? Like, and I think that's why starting off with a stronger community structure is 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 way safer. But I think something you pointed out um, for Gen Zers, I talk about this all the time because I think uh, like maybe we lucked out, and by we I mean like millennials lucked out that all like all of my organizing experience, all of my political and radicalization happened in community in person, in like real life, and then. COVID happened and then I was like, okay, well, like, I, I want to like do something with this. And then it was just a result of that. But I, and I obviously learn a lot online, but I think the biggest like, you know, shifts happened in community. And it also prevented me from being like really shitty to people because I think that's so much easier to do online. So I never really had that like villain arc where I'm just like, fuck you, fuck you, like canceling people because it was just so much harder to do that when per someone in front of you who you know, who you care about has a different viewpoint is telling you something that like triggers cognitive dissonance but i can't just like spit in their face and run i have yeah. to sit there and be like okay i'm gonna like and it, it actually was the reason i like grew at all because so many people forced me to feel uncomfortable about things i was doing and then it was sort of this like beautiful accountability mechanism i guess but now accountability is all about like yelling at people online so yeah it's unfortunate but that's why i think learning about digital security is super important for anybody who does um, any sort of online work at all, political work. Uh, and in one of the resources that we'll share on the uh, Discord server, there is a security handbook, but it also has a digital security culture handbook because real life security culture and digital security culture are like two whole worlds. And so digital security culture, for example, is, is ways that you need to, you can secure your communications with each other. So if you're talking about organizing events and strategies and initiatives, then making sure you do it on a platform that's encrypted and safer like signal versus just like I'm, you know, I'm messaging each other. Um, or for example, if you go to a college campus or are at an institution and have an institutional email, like a, at, you know, your university.edu or at Google whatever, um, like an actual company email, it's like really not advisable to use those to plan political stuff because uh, legally they're allowed to basically pull the servers and ask for any and all emails at all, even if it's deleted, it's not actually deleted, it just goes and it's just stir uh, stored permanently in a server. Um, so freedom of information requests can be made and, and you have to basically reveal everything. So I guess digital security that is about how, how can you secure, where you store things, how you store things, how you communicate with each other uh, email and phone and laptop and <laughs> thinking about how we can protect each other even though the sad thing is we when we've talked about this before we don't have a lot of decentralized systems and platforms to even do this work on because <laughs> ironically like doing activism on instagram is as we've seen with many leftist accounts that have been like shadow banned or deleted entirely um the big uh <laughs> digital security issue is someone can just like delete your account like this and erase like institutional memory of if you store something on a cloud for example that's actually pretty dangerous so <laughs> yeah um, i got my hard drives that everyone's just like why do you have these and I'm like, just just trust me on this one yeah i mean i guess ultimately the safer the safest thing still is like pen and paper now going back to that um but yeah so there's digital security i highly recommend for people that that do most of their work online well don't i really recommend going outside and talking to people but also if you do it anyways, then making sure you're doing it in a secure manner. Um, yeah, and going back to risk assessment, I guess like there, it's a spectrum. There's nothing is like a binary of high risk, low risk, but you can kind of roughly look at it uh, somewhere near higher or lower risk. So for example, folks that are like people of color, poor, marginalized people tend to be higher risks. And we're talking about risk in relation to like, how likely are they to be targets of the state? Um, so. For example, if you go to a protest, a literal protest where there's police, 
it's smarter to always have people that are white passing to be at the front and on the sides because they will less likely face intense violence and physical altercations with the police. So it, so the purpose of this is to evaluate your risk and then know when and how to place things to be able to use the privilege of your most privileged members to sort of protect the more vulnerable at risk folks. Um, and for example, access to resources, certain folks are, are poor. And if there's consequences, like if you get arrested at a protest, then a lot of times to be able to bail you out. And there's folks that have a little bit more access to wealth and to them bailing, like being arrested is actually not that big of a risk. They can afford to do that and they will be bailed out. So being strategic about that, because you have to accept if you're going to do this or not, there's going to be a risk involved, but you can actually control how that happens. Um, or for example, even the nature of what you're doing. So if you do something online, um, or like a legal rally, that's way less risk than, than getting into property destruction, right? Which is higher risk and often necessary, but, um, and then also just how politically active you are. I think if folks are, if you are an organizer, obviously, but also if you're very outspoken about certain issues, then there's a higher target on your back and a larger electronic footprint, as opposed to people that show up at a protest because it's happening, you know? Um, so, but again, if folks are doing that and organizing is not at the forefront of your world, then you might actually be a better asset by being, being able to put yourself out there more in person events, um, where it's less of a, less of a risk for you to be able to interact with law enforcement, for example. Um, but thinking about, uh, I think the one thing I want to mention before I go into the protest stuff is knowing your local community really well and understanding your local context. Because depending on where you live, there's a deep history with how the law enforcement has interacted with activists in that area. And that also shapes your risk. Because for example, if you live in, I don't know, like Los Angeles or SoCal, there's a pretty intense, like <laughs> any sort of anti uh, anti-Zionist like activism is just like super suppressed and there's there's like power dynamics involved often that people don't even realize where they lose jobs they get kicked out of university campuses and there's all these um players and actors that that show us how powerful that particular dynamic is so i think being aware of that sometimes allows you to shape your events and know know accordingly for example you might decide to be a little bit more secure about how open your organization is or your group is in terms of like how easily you recruit people, you might want to have a little bit more filter of a filter. For example, we do for like Palestine solidarity groups and it's not gatekeeping, but just expect people to know people <laughs> and just have someone to vouch for you essentially. Um, where if, if it is an intense issue like that, then for example, like you go at a protest, it's pretty common for police to always arrest people. There are cities where that pretty regularly always happens, right? Like Chicago, for example. Um, or if it's pretty common for, again, disruptors to show up and like start, start shit <laughs> and have infiltrators. So you can kind of like adapt, I guess, uh, according, according to that. And then the last thing I'll say is like, know your rights <laughs> stuff. Um, this is like, again, very accessible online. There's, there's groups that will give, come to your org and give you free workshops on it, but there's whole ba like pamphlets that give you like an abbreviated version of all the rights that you have in terms of what you can and can't do, what you can and can't say, um, and also like what happens when you do interact with law enforcement or like intelligence agencies and what power you do have and what access to resources you have. And I think knowing that is really important because for example, when I got interrogated, I'm not actually 
uh, the first time at least, I like say said way more than I should have said. And not because I have anything to hide, but because I just don't want to fucking talk to these people. <laughs> and I don't have to. And I should have just asked if they had a warrant or, or a subpoena of any kind and then no, then get out. You'll hear from my lawyers. <laughs> um, but I, out of the fear and the intimidation, which is like what they're designed to do, I said a lot more than I should have said. And, you know, a lot of times knowing how you can protect your communities is just knowing like when to not do shit. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, so I, I would add an asterisk to what you're saying in terms of uh, the organizations. The United States, as far as I know, is um, has much more uh, more resources available in mm -hmm. terms of those workshops that you're talking about. I mean, I, I it could be because I'm in the U.S., but as far as I'm <laughs> aware, um, it's not as common in other parts of the the world uh to have those resources available for workshops and things like that and yep. if i'm wrong please let me know in the chats but uh that's at least from conversations i've had yeah i think it's just mo uh there are more resources like online like like again like little abbreviated you know pamphlets and things like that but yeah it, it, i think folks are lucky if you're organizing i mean lucky and unlucky to be like in the beast of the empire to like organize in the united states i guess um but also, on the other hand, I would say like most other communities outside the like colonial uh, outside colonial countries tend to be more collectivist, so they just end up having stronger community infrastructure, which sometimes yeah. just in the U.S. we really struggle with because we have to fight through all this like capitalism and individualism that we're just like ingrained with. Um, so it's interesting, I guess, seeing the dynamic play out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, okay, moving into protests, uh, I uh, one of the resources that will be shared on the Discord is. Uh, this it's there's like a bunch of PDFs you can download by a group called Riot Medicine that basically gives you everything that you possibly need to know about emergency medicine stuff that you could do in person at a at a protest or an event in in case of an, a medical emergency. Uh, there's a whole textbook if you're actually like interested in, in in serving as a medic and being someone at protest who can take on that responsibility. And then there's also like an abbreviated version for folks uh, that are in the field that just need to know uh, organizers that just need to know what they can do when the when the time comes. But I think the most important thing is to always, always prepare, plan, and come with, like, come with resources. Because, like I said, it's always best to assume nothing is safe. And that includes, quote, unquote, legal rallies. I think we saw that with, um, like, the wave of, the last wave we had of uh, police murders, that there were so many protests that were, that are met, and that were met with uh, a lot of violence and arrests. And, these are legal protests with like where organizers got licenses and whatnot but from the city and it still yeah. happens. So that's not necessarily a blanket, a safety blanket. <laughs> yeah. And to piggyback on that, um, we did uh, two weeks ago, I think it was uh, an IFAC and um, basically a mini stop the bleed on here. So for folks that are listening and say, mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I should probably learn that stuff. Uh, you can go through our, uh, our, database of episodes, I guess you could call them, uh, on our YouTube. Twitch, I know, is a pain in the ass about this stuff. <laughs> so like, you can only like see it for, I think, a day or two unless you subscribe, which costs like a couple bucks, which if you want to, great. But also, we put it up on YouTube. We've also started uploading all the episodes as audio files on a uh, alternative podcast called The Poor Proles Skillshare, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. um, so for folks that are like, I can't sit still and watch something for that long, like you can go <laughs> and just listen to it there. So uh, this is like a perfect episode for that because it's not a lot of visual stuff going mm -hmm. on. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so if if you are thinking about like, okay, basic medical security, um, go watch the uh, how to build an IFAC and what should be in it. 
fairly simple, fairly cheap. Um, and it's something that everyone should have on them because the idea is that your IFAC is for you, not for mm -hmm. the people around you. So if everyone mm -hmm. has one, even if something major happens, there's enough. So if you're right. concerned about the people around you, make sure yourself is taken care of first. Yeah. Um, so just yeah. something to think about. Yeah, I was gonna say the the first thing that I had written down is 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 like yeah that essentially and 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 even scaling down to like having basic first aid kits again not for everybody else but like making sure you have enough for you, um, and there's there's you literally can like Google search this about what are the essentials that you need for a first aid kit that involves any sort of a group or a community protest, um, and and making sure you have things um, that you might not anticipate but are still like things that you can easily use in worst case scenarios, I think helps. And this is where like workshops like that help uh, prepare for worst case scenarios because some certain resources that you can have like like gauze or, or bandage is like, it's simple, but sometimes can help even in worst case scenarios. Um, and thinking of, um, for example, we always talk about stuff that you should show up with. Um, so beside first aid kits, it's also things like uh, that, that might be necessary, not just for short term injuries, but in case arrests happen, for example, and, and you're not able to return home safely for, for more than 24, 48 hours or even longer, uh, then having access to medications, for example, enough supply of daily medications that you need, insulin, EpiPens, um, and pain relieving medication. These are like simple things that kind of plan for worst case scenarios where, okay, this goes really wrong and I get arrested. So something like that happens. Um, and also thinking about having what we call like a medical card um, and this is kind of a fine line between, uh, I guess, being um, identified and then uh, be making sure that you're, you're trying to protect your identity as much as possible, but then also having uh, information that's necessary for emergencies, like things that you're allergic to, medical conditions that you have. If, and by allergic to, I mean, for example, if you have like a penicillin allergy and then something happens and you're taken to the hospital, it, it really helps to know that. <laughs> Um, so any kind of medical information that would be essential if you are taken to the ER, um, is something to think about and have on, on a little card that's on you at all times. So I think that always helps. Um, and most importantly, I think if you're planning an event, thinking about bringing medics with you, there are tons of work. If you Google an organization in your area that will volunteer their time to, to come and serve as medics at events, especially I think after the wave of protests that has happened within the last two years, there's organizations that actually do this uh, and paramedics that will show up. But then also you can train folks in your organization quite a bit. So for example, BLS training, which is basic life support, is accessible to people, uh, to anybody. So you can actually get certified and, and get the training. And it's pretty accessible, as, at least to folks in the United States. And I think having at least core organizers of protests do this training pretty much gives you a lot of information that you need to just at least do harm reduction when something happens. Um, even, I mean, ultimately the idea is to evacuate and get help if something happens that's extreme, but harm reduction, I think is kind of the approach that you can take in this case. Um, and also if you're thinking about, like I said, protest structure is important. This is where it's about mitigation of, of violence as much as possible, um, in terms of like protecting your people and making sure you're structuring your, your protests to where folks with privilege are at the front and po folks with, with less privilege or more medical conditions or with chronic illnesses or disabilities are just a little bit more insulated towards the inside. Um, and then uh, also uh, besides BLS, another thing I thought of is de-escalation training, which is again, more way more accessible to people in the United States for, for free, <laughs> essentially. There's already like workshops and stuff on YouTube 
where and de-escalation training specifically is if there is a hostile interaction that happens, if you have some sort of a violent disruption that wasn't even planned, how do you actually go about that? Um, and making sure, for example, you have people that are assigned to be liaisons if the event comes that you need to interact with the police. Um, and making sure it, who is it and, and how are they, how equipped are they and how protected are they to be able to have that interaction. So I think planning for things like that beforehand is another part of, of making sure that when it really comes down to it, you do need to take care of each other and then there's a responsibility for you to like mitigate violence as much as possible. Um, and in general, I think we can go through like, you can throw out like general tips if I'm, if I'm forgetting anything, but um, so we always think about the biggest thing that you think about are like physical violence. So like being, being, being beat by batons and, and like literal physical altercations, but more often than not, it's, it's chemical uh, exposure, uh, like tear gas and pepper spray and other chemicals that are pretty widely disseminated. So in, in cases of that, you can actually do a lot by preparing for it, um, and doing a lot of preventative measures that can, um, Basically, it's pretty consistent that this happens. I think most protests, mass protests that I've seen, it's pretty regular now, at least the use of tear gas. Um, so just preparing for it. So things like, for example, now it's more normalized to have N95s, but if you ideally have a gas mask, but if not, N95s actually go a long way in, in protecting against uh, chemical exposure and also like swimming goggles. <laughs> so anything that's um, resistant to breaking, but also uh, can protect your eyes when, when, the, when the time comes. Um, and little things uh, I think that, that help are, the most you can do, I guess, is minimize the amount of your body that's exposed in any way possible. So that basically means covering as much as possible, long sleeves, close-toed shoes, pants, but also layers. And the reason we talk about layers is because there's increasing use of rubber bullets now, which can, and I mean, if there's impact to your head or your eye or anywhere in your face, then that can be a lot more severe. But usually with, with body, you can, it, I mean, it's tough. There will be bleeding. There will be like breaking of skin. There will be bruising. But the more layers you have, uh, the less of an impact there is. So preparing and anticipating that. Uh, and also thinking about, uh, for example, not putting any oil-based um, like moisturizers or creams um, or even sunscreens, like putting sunscreen, but there's non-oil-based sunscreens. And the reason that is is because they actually clog up a bunch of chemicals. So for example, if you are exposed to uh, pepper spray or, or tear gas that will actually stick to your skin and, and be an irritant. Um, and also contact. Yeah, and, uh, I was going to just say, uh, you talked about like the layering and specifically, you know, wearing black, you know, typically you yeah. hear the term like black block and it's literally because <laughs> you want to wear all black and not be able to be differentiated. Uh, yes. So yes. And now I guess it's normalized because of the frequent use of masks, but trying as much as possible to have, um, like facial coverage as well, which can go a long way in protecting, not just uh, for the purposes of like chemical, I mean, chemical protection is important, um, but also de like de-identification. Uh, there are facial recognition technologies that are pretty widely used now, especially if it's a, if it's a large protest in a major urban city. Um, and uh, you can go a long way with, with just covering your nose and your mouth. <laughs> yeah. And, um, Speaking of the technology component, like that also plays into your own digital footprint and um, keeping yourself secure and separate from your uh, cell phone for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you're going and to be going I think a, a lot of people suggest even like paper and pen for for like literal uh, uh, analog ways that you can record what's happening at a protest because it is important to document like instances of, of police brutality, for example, to be able to 
be a witness to something. But besides having like cameras and phones and such, like sometimes literally being able to document, have witnesses, have people that can vouch for you. Yeah. And um, if you are going to bring a phone to bring basically a burner phone, you can get like track phones for like 30 bucks, 20 bucks. <laughs> um, they're they're fine. They're they're sufficient for the purposes that you might need them to yeah. contact certain people. Um, to, but the key thing is to insulate yourself uh, at the protest from the rest of uh, your identity as much as you can. Uh, anything that might be able to be incriminated against you uh, to just be smart about it. Mm hmm. And um, another thing I was thinking of is if and not wearing anything that can be tugged on or pulled. So like if you have long hair, tie it, <laughs> put it in your hoodie, uh, jewelry, uh, loose clothing, that that's very easy to be pulled because that's another thing. Like, you know, if cops show up, they often show up not just with like battalions, but on horses and shit, which is wild. But like they do grab people and, and like use any and all things to, to be able to tug on you. So um, yeah, being able to be insulated as much as possible I think is, is sort of a protective mechanism, but also another protective mechanism is making sure you're not there alone. <laughs> um, and you're just using a buddy system. And usually if, if, if organizers are, are putting folks together, then you should always have people that keep tabs with each other to make sure that when big things happen, that, that at least, you know, people are keeping an eye out, keeping track of like who's where. Um, and, and if folks are not traceable, then making sure then there's like search parties that can be put out to like make sure someone's safe and okay. Um, Again, those are like pretty classic preventative measures. And oddly, yes, I think tear gas is pretty common, but the most frequent thing that I've seen at protests in terms of like a health hazard is like heat stroke. <laughs> heat stroke and exhaustion, that's like the most common thing I've seen. Um, like that's 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 pretty severe sometimes for folks and and therefore just keeping sure, making sure that you have enough water and, and basic like food supply, like granola bars or anything that you can eat if something happens, but especially water, like having as many bottles of water as possible is like hydration is so important, especially if this is something that's happening under like direct sunlight, which can be extremely like ext extremely draining for certain people. And I think people don't even realize what a heat stroke is until it just happens to you. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> And uh, it could be, yeah, it's it's one of those things I've, we're in a weird time right now where we've had these protests. And I think about like, and you might have similar experiences to me when I was in college and after college and in, more active in a lot of this stuff. Um, like I, I didn't have texting. So like, if you wanted to get a hold of somebody, like there is only a few channels to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and also like thinking around like organizing in general, uh, and like the protest community, um, we here in the United States, it's grown so much and is so much better. And uh, like, I hesitate to use the phrase, but like battle hardened compared to even where we were like a couple of years ago. Yeah, um, and I guess I guess that comes from there. And, and outside the United States, certain communities are consistently like normalized. It was like, for example, like Palestinians on the ground, right? Like, I think this is just their life. But I think in the U.S. over the last like few years, there's been an arc of people becoming increasingly politicized and normalized to this. Maybe because it is it is like a balance of like increasing technology. I guess it's made it apparent to people how people are treated at protests and what really happens. Whereas before, a lot of the the surveillance and a lot of the intense like backlash people would face was very shielded and, and shielded within communities and people just knowing what happened um, because it, there, they, it, there's no news coverage. <laughs> There was no news coverage, but now there's like at least um, me the media is not just the sole distributor of information, I guess, which is 
um, which is a little more, but also protests are larger because of the co-optation. So there's a bunch of randos that show up to, to protest, to take pictures and post about it, you know? So there is, it's like, everything is, is this. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's different. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's very, it's very different how normal it is to be like, oh yeah, you guys, let's go to a protest. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about in regards um, to protest security? Oh yeah, so I think um, the other thing is I wanted to cover a little bit about uh, tear gas and then wounds, like actual wounds. So with tear gas, um, I think people have pretty much heard this, but I mean, try not to wear contacts. If you wear glasses, just wear like wear glasses and wear goggles over it, but um, don't wear contacts as much as possible because those a lot can go wrong with contacts. Um, but uh, thinking about again bringing water as much as possible because that just not for hydrate, not just for hydration, but for also flushing your eyes out. Um, for rinsing your mouth and, and spitting, not swallowing, and blowing your nose. Uh, for, for all of those purposes, it really helps. Um, and I know there's like debates between like, oh, should we use milk? Should we use that? I think in general, like water is safe, <laughs> like flushing your eyes with water. And if you do have access to it, which you can get at any like over-the-counter store, um, half antacid and half water, which is like, and by antacid specifically, like aluminum hydroxide or magnesium hydroxide and half water. Um, that tends to like get rid of things fairly quickly and also things to speaking of things to take taking a change of clothes I think for me I've actually had to use that word like the easiest thing to just like get rid of everything was just to get rid of everything and then just wear something different um, which just prevented like long-term rotation uh, when it comes to wounds a lot of like for example like I don't know I've had my ass beat at a protest I didn't necessarily need to go to the ER like but I think it helped to have like ways to um, just take care of the situation in the, in the moment. So if there's like minor uh, cuts and, and for example, bruises, uh, with cuts, for example, the biggest issue is, is infection and the risk of infection. So anything and everything that you can do to mitigate that, which is just making sure you carry uh, medical grade alcohol with you all the time, that can go a long way. Um, so making sure you can sanitize your hands and then have someone who can use sanitized hands to be able to wash the wound out with water. And, uh, basically put bandage uh, over it to close it and to prevent it from having any sort of external exposure. Um, and another thing that you first aid kids tend to have, um, but if not, you can actually go get it, is antibiotic ointment. So it's like Neosporin, you can actually get this over the counter. Um, again, just to put that on, on a cut or a bruise or a wound. Uh, sometimes you don't really know when you got cut on, oftentimes it's metal, and that's where, that's where there's a higher risk if you do cut yourself on metal. Um, and I think uh, if there's inflammation, so sometimes if you're just getting like beat with a baton, then you're probably having a swollen arm or a swollen leg. That's where like pain relievers helps because they actually help with inflammation. Uh, chances are you're not gonna be able to really carry ice around, but if you can go get ice, then yes. But if not, then pain relievers actually help a lot. Um, would just, I guess, keep you in not, in not, in a, not, not pain for long enough to be able to get you out of there, um, which, is, which is the goal. Um, and with larger injuries, in general, you cannot fix the problem there. I think that's important. You, it is not your job. It is not your responsibility. If someone's shoulder dislocates, please don't pop it back in Like if you don't know how to do that. Um, the most you can do as a rule of thumb for any major injury, whether it's a bleed or a cranial wound or like a dislocation, is stabilize it as much as possible. So what that means is if you have a splint, apply a splint to immobilize it, so prevent the person from moving. As much as possible if there is bleeding involved you can't apply pressure like if you have bandages you can use that to be able to um, mitigate the amount of bleeding and ultimately it's psychological consolation to the person that's there to try to make sure um, they they themselves are are in shock and being able to address that till you're able to evacuate and call medics to be able to get real help 
Um, yeah, and uh, I'll just comment on that. Like most medics don't care, uh, like what you were doing. They're there to fix you and not to judge you. Um, mm -hmm. So like the if there's like a fear of like you know I'm protesting and like I'm afraid some chud is going to show up as an EMT or something like yeah. in yeah that's not something that really happens. They're not like cops. Um, they, yeah, I think distinguishing between that is helpful, which is why I say there are a lot of like medic organizations and stuff that will volunteer to go to protests because. I think that's maybe one of the unique, maybe like firefighters. I mean, there is a unique niche there where they are really there to protect us sometimes. Yeah. Um, so, but it helps for you. Your your goal is to just get get be safe and get out of there and get help. So, so as far as that, there are very many layers of protection involved that allow them to do their job and for you to be safe there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think this was like a pretty good overview for a lot of folks that uh, like, I think a lot of what we've talked about, not a lot, like 50% is stuff that people have heard before. Uh, but I think sometimes you need to like put it in a bigger package that like it frames it up in a, a digestible way that like each of the pieces of information kind of reinforce the other one, which is kind of what my, my hope was with this. Um, so yeah, really, the lesson is like prepare, 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 and don't under underestimate the time it takes for you to like. It is helpful to have life skills in general, and I think like BLS is, for example, like a really great life skill to have. De-escalation is like a really good life skill to have to just protect not just yourself, but to protect other people around you. So I think like doing that kind of work on your own and for your community members and encouraging other people around you to do that is something that you can just like have with you forever. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of resources out there, like one day classes that you can learn like a lot from, I mean, on top of stuff that's on YouTube. But at the end of the day, a lot of this, I think you need just like with community, you need that hands on component. Uh, this is just you like just need to get, show up to a protest, get tear gas, get beat, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you need to want to rip your eyes out of their sockets to really appreciate <laughs> this stuff. Uh, and then you'll you'll get it. Um, yeah, anything else? Uh, folks that are watching, any questions, thoughts, concerns, complaints, reservations, addendums, anything? <laughs> addendums. <laughs> that was, that was my, like, shtick at the end of when I used to teach, uh, like, at the oh, end of the cool. lesson. Oh, cool, yeah, everyone yeah. has a spiel. That reminds me of, like, Robert's Rules, like, yeah, addendums. <laughs> Keep, make it sound fancy. Uh, so, yeah, I guess no questions, really. Um, yeah, I thought this was really interesting. Um, it's a... a I won't ask too much, um, but like I'm in the Northeast and I know you've been kind of everywhere else. So um, it's interesting to see, hear the same like experiences, like not that you would expect it to be significantly different, but um, I don't know, it's, it's validating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think I kind of now looking back and more, oh, another thing when I was thinking about uh, digital security is like another common tactic that's pretty prevalent now in certain movements like abolition, like police prison abolition in Palestine, at least that I that I know of is blacklists are pretty common for activists. So for example, there's a website that puts anybody who does advocacy on Palestine in the United States or like UK, Australia, Canada onto a list where we're just called like anti-Semites and there's just like everything about you that they can find is up there, including where you live, your phone number, what you do, like, like they're basically literally tracking you in real time um and giving people updates about what your life is up to and then spinning something and everything that you do into something that's like scary and malicious to try to frame it as like terrorism essentially yeah. um but it's interesting because part of i guess the pushback on that has been 
yes, raising awareness about how ridiculous it is, but also people still doing what they're doing anyways. <laughs> yeah. And and delegitimizing the like how like because it is very clownish to have something like this out there. Yeah. Uh, someone asked if there are a specific good resource available online for de-escalation. Online? Yeah. I want to say that there's, um, let me actually like pull up. Yeah, we have, um, I had certain orgs that I know that actually have uh, like similar pamphlets that they put together for, for de-escalation. I can send it your way to throw on the Discord. Yeah, will do. Uh, yeah. So if, if folks listening enjoyed this conversation, um, please go check out Aisha's Substack. I know that's a new project for her, and uh, I, I definitely will be checking it out as well. Uh, I, I already made a stirring posting um, one of your uh, store reels or whatever it's called. Oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> about, uh, yeah. So, so, yeah, it's good stuff. It's interesting. It's definitely going to get your attention, so go check it out. Um, if, if you enjoyed this and you just want to throw her a couple bucks, uh, I'm going to post her cash app and her PayPal so you can throw her a few bucks. And if you're not following her on Instagram, I don't know how you've made it this long following <laughs> Corporal's Almanac and haven't started following her. It's at Woke Scientist. Uh, yeah, I think that's just about it for us. Any Anything else you wanted to add? No, yeah, thanks, y'all. Thanks, thanks, I guess, for having me again as a repeat guest. <laughs> you're you're going to be like our weekly, bi-weekly repeat guest. You're just stuck <laughs> yeah, with me like now. You have you know, when you're like, oh, well, let's, let's bring her back on. We, we always yeah. have something to talk about. Yeah, there's always something to talk about. <laughs> All I have to do is like be like, remember back in the day, and then we'll just talk about like <laughs> pre-Zoomer time, and we're good. We'll find stuff to talk about. Uh, for folks that are watching and they're like, what the hell am I watching? We are the Poor Pearls Almanac. Uh, we have a podcast. We drop weekly episodes. You can check that out wherever you listen to podcasts. We recently did an interview with Dr. Sophie Chow uh, over at the University of Sydney about diac resistance and gastrocolonialism, which is as interesting as you might think it is because you've probably <laughs> never heard the term. Um <laughs> Next week, we're doing an episode on uh, Adena agriculture here in the United States about some indigenous land management practices. So definitely tune in for that next Sunday. And um, I will also do a quick plug for my other podcast um, called Tomorrow Today, where we where I speak with academics about the research that they're doing and make it um, meaningful for what the future looks like. So that's pretty much my plug. If you've enjoyed this, hit us up on um subscribe i think is the term on twitch i don't know uh whatever it is i think you get like an amazon prime free subscription so if you want to give us oh, two bucks cool. and have it cost you nothing go do that um if you want to support us on patreon two bucks seven cents a day you get early access to all of our episodes and um some other content that we didn't think people would really care about outside of like diehard listeners, I guess. So you can go check that out too. And uh, I think that's just about it. So uh, Aisha, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. And uh, I look forward to seeing what else you come out with on Substack. Thanks, y'all.